coming up next on the GeoTrack podcast. And we kind of had a makeshift news production facility in one room, the, the control room, some small offices, edit bays, the newsroom, the news desk, the weather center, the anchor desk was just all in this one big room that was still kind of open to the elements. We had porta potties outside to go to the bathroom. We had armed security guards because uh, as far as New Orleans, Town is not the safest of neighborhoods. And once you tack on the fact that we're one of the few areas with power, you become kind of a target. Hurricane Katrina slammed the Gulf Coast in August of 2005, inflicting a widespread catastrophe. The impacts of this disaster are mind-boggling. It caused more than 1,800 fatalities, generated the largest storm surge on record in the Western Hemisphere, and inflicted the costliest natural disaster in U.S. history. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Hal, host of the GeoTrek podcast. Episodes 42 and 43 of the podcast look back at Katrina, which occurred 17 years ago this month, to remember this disaster and learn lessons that we can apply where we live. Our guest for these episodes is New Orleans native Chris Franklin, chief meteorologist with WWL-TV in the Crescent City. You're going to love these episodes if you have ties to the Gulf Coast, are interested in tropical meteorology and hurricanes, or if you just want to learn valuable lessons to apply back home to make yourself or your community more resilient. This podcast also has great insights for young meteorologists coming up and covering high-profile disasters. But first, a bit about the podcast. The GeoTrek podcast travels the world to find stories about the relationship between people and nature. Our stories investigate the impact of extreme weather, disasters, and hazards on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you understand better how the world works so you can take actions to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient from all the extremes Mother Nature can throw at us. Hey, before we get into this episode, we have a favor to ask of you. We'd really appreciate if you'd subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Well, hey, let's hop over to the French Quarter to meet up with Chris. We'll be at Café du Monde and order an extra plate of beignets for you. These are going to be great episodes that focus on New Orleans, Katrina, and what we can learn from this disaster. Let's learn a little more about this week's guest. Born and raised in the New Orleans area, Chris Franklin is currently the chief meteorologist at WWL-TV. After earning a Bachelor of Science in Meteorology from the University of South Alabama, he began his broadcast career in 2004 in Topeka, Kansas. After about a year of snow forecasts and tornado chasing, he returned home to WVUE-TV in early August 2005. Baptism by fire was how Chris describes forecasting Hurricane Katrina as it approached the Louisiana coast, covering the buildup, landfall, and aftermath of the storm. After about 10 years at WVUE as the morning meteorologist, Chris moved across town to WWL in 2016 and was later promoted to chief meteorologist in 2019. Chris has received numerous awards from the Press Club of New Orleans, the Louisiana Association of Broadcasters, and he and his team earned the distinction of best weather in the country from Broadcast and Cable Magazine for their coverage of Hurricane Ida in 2021. Chris holds the AMS television seal of approval and is married with two young children. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. This is a very special edition with Chris Franklin, chief meteorologist of WWL-TV in New Orleans. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
a, a pleasure. And, you know, reliving some past storms is sometimes a, a benefit and a curse of having to go through it again. But, you know, maybe we can learn something. Yeah, it's both. Chris, I really enjoyed getting to meet you at the National Tropical Weather Conference in South Padre. You're in New Orleans and you have all these amazing stories from the past. I really want to get into your storm stories and perspectives. But before we do that, I want to go back even farther. I mean, you're just you're such a good weather communicator. You can tell you have a passion for weather and meteorology. Like, how did this start? Is this something you were interested in when you were like a child growing up? You know, growing up and this is a, a part of mainly school talks that I do because I do a lot of uh, community talks to adults and kids. But uh, one part that I really stress when I do the school talks to some of the younger kids is the fact that uh, when I was younger, I was always interested in science. I was always very curious. So science was always very intriguing to me, but all the fields of science. Uh, but what really started guiding me toward weather and meteorology was that when I was a child, I was scared to death of the weather. If I saw dark clouds on, I mean, a typical New Orleans summertime day is we begin sunny. You start to see those dark clouds building by the mid-afternoon. I wanted curtains closed. I didn't want to go outside. I was scared to death. And it wasn't anything that specifically ever happened to me. I just was terrified of the weather. So when you'd hear that alert and the crawl come across the bottom of the screen with severe weather, my God, I was, I was terrified. And especially when the meteorologist was coming on on air to talk about a hurricane and threatening and they were showing the coordinates, I was petrified of that. So at, at some point in my life, I realized if I maybe start learning about it, maybe I can overcome that fear. Because if I understand what the meteorologist is talking about on television, maybe then I can get over this fear. And so I did. So I started learning more about it, reading about it and yeah, that's fascinating. So, Chris, you grew up in New Orleans then. So, yes, I'm from New Orleans. So so to be chief meteorologist in my hometown where I was born and raised is a, truly a blessing. So it, it's it's a place that I know very well, having grown up here. And so, you know, there's a part of me that has gotten familiar with the weather patterns over the last 40 years, just having experienced it every single year. So, yeah, it was it was it was more of a fear uh, uh, and then and then trying to overcome that fear by learning that really got me into the passion of weather. OK, so you're like it, it sounds like you had an aptitude for science and you said, you know, let me learn more about this and see what it's all about to kind of alleviate those fears. And uh, obviously, as you got more into it, you became even more interested because here you are, you know, as a meteorologist. So what about like university years? So you studied meteorology uh, at university? Yes. So then um, once I realized that this is what I wanted to do as a career and it was definitely before high school that I realized this is what I would, I could say it was probably middle school, sixth grade or so that I realized I wanted to do meteorology. Uh, I went to the University of South Alabama in Mobile. So I stayed along the Gulf Coast and studied meteorology, had my Bachelor of Science in Meteorology from there. And as far as being a broadcaster in this field, I really didn't do a whole lot of broadcasting courses. My, my focus was actually environmental meteorology. So I took okay. extra environmental science courses, hydrology courses, uh, some other geology, uh, because I knew for TV, I'd probably get that experience either as an intern or a couple of courses that I did do in broadcasting, but I didn't want that to be my primary focus. To be honest, I wanted to do more science. I wanted to get as much science out of, uh, out of sure. college as I possibly could. 
before going into the work field. Yeah, and University of South Alabama has a great program there. A lot of Gulf Coast meteorologists go through that program. Uh, they, they do a great job. And a little shout out, the parent company that funds GeoTrack and this podcast, they're based in Mobile, CNC Catastrophe and National Claims. And, and a lot of times there's a really nice relationship there with the university because Mobile is just so central along the Gulf Coast there. It is. And it was a great university. And, and despite the fact that we were on the Gulf Coast and, and did a lot of tropical weather forecasting, our professors there were great about having us forecast for various parts of the country to where when I got my first job out of school in Topeka, Kansas, I was totally ready to do snow forecasting for real this time and also severe weather forecasting. But, you know, the, the, the bread and butter at, at, at South is, is tropical weather. So, Chris, let's let's transition then. You get your bachelor's in meteorology. You get this first job out in Topeka, and there you are in an environment completely different from South Louisiana. What was it like living there and forecasting out there? It was it was different. It was a different, um, a completely different environment. Our, our station where I worked was literally in the middle of a cornfield. It was out on a rural highway. You would just drive and drive and drive, and then all of a sudden, there's the transmitter tower and there's the building in the middle of a cornfield. Um, it, but it was, it was different. I started there in uh, October of 2004. And so I had just kind of basic weather that I had to contend with at first, but then we had the first big snow forecast. So this was my big, you know, here's the verification. Let's see this if is I your big moment. I'm, the or, pressure's this, on. This was it. This is it. And thankfully my first snow forecast was outstanding. Later, a snow forecast may not been as great with in terms of the timing of changing over to snow or the amounts, but but I was able to handle the snow forecast and that severe weather season. I mean, Great Plains, it's huge, and so yeah, the springtime that really ramps up out there. It, it ramps up, and it's and it's completely different because I'd never done. There was a, um, a a class that you could take where you did some storm chasing. I didn't do it, so this was totally different from just sitting at the computer forecasting severe sure. weather. I was forecasting it and then being sent out to go chase storms and you know it's funny this is really before cell phones were as big as they are now this was 04 so i would have no signal on my phone and i'd have to record what i could as i'm chasing and then stop somewhere and get on a payphone to then do a, a phoner with the station live on tv about what i had just seen so it was it was it was um a new experience for both snow forecasting but actually experiencing it and then also for for severe weather. So it was a it was a great um, learning station where it's it's a small station. Everybody's pretty young. Everybody's for the most part just starting out. I was able to work under a very experienced meteorologist there, but then also kind of learn the the very basics of of snow, winter forecasting, severe weather forecasting. And then we can kind of fast forward to my tropical forecasting experience with Katrina. It is. And before we do that, something I wanted to touch on, I lived in South Louisiana for eight years, you know, and I was surprised. I pictured severe weathers like North Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. I was surprised how many severe weather outbreaks sometimes do reach down to the I-10 corridor and then wintertime as well. So I wonder if that time in Kansas kind of helped you prepare. I know we don't get tons of winter storms in South Louisiana, but it does happen, right? No, we do. And, and, and you know, it, what's interesting is when we do, they're probably more impactful because such as North Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, they're going to get it every single winter. And they're going right. to get several of these big winter events. When we get them in New Orleans, South Louisiana, every couple of years, 
they can shut us down. I mean, if we get ice on bridges, and it wasn't too long ago, uh, 16, 17, maybe 17, we had an ice storm here, and there was ice on the Causeway Bridge, which connects yeah. the South Shore and the North Shore of Lake Pontchartrain. That shuts us down. I mean, if, sure. if, if our bridges are impassable, this is a city surrounded by water. That's right. And the one morning I was going into work that we had the ice storm, it was advised, do not cross any bridges. Yeah. And I'm thinking between my house in Jefferson Parish and Orleans Parish, where our station is, I'm thinking about the number of bridges, overpasses that I, that I drive across. And I'm thinking, I've got to avoid all of those just to get to work. It added another half hour just to get into the station. So winter weather, more impactful. And even our severe weather, it's funny with Lake Pontchartrain, there is almost a dividing line between how far south the, the real severe storms get. And I'm talking the the more significant tornadoes. Sure. Orleans Parish, south of the lake, it's it's few and far between, but you get to the North Shore and then just across the state line, southwest Mississippi, it's night and day. It is definitely that that Dixie Alley of yeah. that southern tornado alley. It's it's very much a dividing line. And you could even say that dividing line kind of cuts across our viewing area from the North Shore and in Mississippi to the South Shore, whereas Metro New Orleans we really don't. It's a it's a rare occurrence, but north of the lake and, and farther north, it's it's fairly common in the springtime for us. Yeah, you get north of I-12, you start to get a lot of severe weather really quickly, right? Yes, very, very much so. And you'll get those more long track tornadoes, whereas Metro New Orleans, we've had some in our history, but it's just not as common. Sure, for sure. No, that's very interesting. Thanks for covering those different types of severe weather hazards. I know most of the year along the Gulf Coast, it's hot and humid. Hurricanes and tropical weather are the big concern, but you're right. These other uh, other events like winter weather and severe weather, it maybe not as common, but when it happens, it can be a big impact. So, uh, Chris, there you are wrapping up in Kansas. And uh, what was next on your uh, career path after that? Well, like I said, I started in 04 in, in Topeka, and I was always itching to get back home, though. I mean, I'm from New yeah. Orleans. It was, it was a little bit farther away. I went away to college to Mobile, but it was only two hours away. And I'm a homebody, so I wanted to get back home. My entire family's here. And so, thankfully, the parent company that owned the station in Topeka also owned WVUE in New Orleans. And uh, I had been an intern there from high school and into college. So I knew the meteorologists, I knew the staff there, and I was very familiar with the station. And the chief there at the time, Bob Breck, was always trying to get me to come back as well. He, he liked me. I was kind of a, a protege under him and was always trying to get back. And here was an opportunity to come back less than a year out of school and from Topeka. So I spent only about nine, 10 months in Topeka. Okay. And by August, 2005, I was coming back home to new Orleans thinking, Oh good. This will be just kind of a easy homecoming. And that was August 2005. Of, that sounds familiar to me for some reason. It does. It might sound familiar to a lot of people. Yeah, but this was early August 2005. Our world had not changed uh, as of yet when I came back home. And when I started back home, I was kind of the number four meteorologist. I was I was more of the fill-in guy. I would help weather produce and fill in when the other when the other folks would take vacation. So I didn't really have a set shift. I was more of a floater and just kind of did whatever I needed to do. But it was it was good to be home. Yeah. So Chris, yeah. So here you are, you're back home. It's August of 05. You're only out of school about a year. You're settling in. You're probably just still moving and transitioning. And all of a sudden this storm named Katrina comes into the Gulf. Could you kind of walk us through? I mean, 
What was it like watching Katrina approach South Louisiana? What uh, maybe just in the days before? I mean, what was it? What was going through your mind? And then how did that play out for you personally and professionally? You know, initially, and if you look back at the forecast on the Hurricane Center, and it's what's incredible is how how far more accurate the forecasts are, not only in the computer models, but in the forecast from the National Hurricane Center. I mean, they're spot on, you know, days out. With Katrina, it, it, it took a little time to really get that forecast uh, set in stone. If you remember earlier on, this formed uh, east of Florida, and initially it looked like it was just going to move along the east coast and stay well clear of the Gulf. Well, then the next day we started to see that westward trend in the models, and it looked like, okay, it's getting into the Gulf. So even at first, none of us were really too concerned about it. It looked like this was going to stay to our east and we would be on the dry side so dry side of the storm we get usually sunny days here in southeast louisiana and then as we got further and further into the 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 timing of when this was going to be making landfall it started looking like this is coming at us and very similar to the ida forecast there is nothing in the gulf that's going to stop this from just intensifying rapidly and that's exactly what happened it it started to get a little more harrowing. And I guess I mark it down to just being young and naive and not really having any connections. I mean, as I said, my family is from here, but I wasn't married. I had no children. To me, it was going to be fun. This was going to be great. This is, I'm, I'm only out of school a year and I'm getting a major hurricane in my hometown. This is going to be an incredible experience. And this is going to be, and maybe fun is not the right word, but it's going to be a learning experience. But it's going to be one of those heart racing. Sure. There's excitement with it, right? The storm's coming. You're covering it. Right. Sure. And and I, you know what I'm, and I may see that from a lot of younger meteorologists on social media. Sure. That I know they have all the right intentions and they, they have the knowledge, but they, they tend to get a little too excited about these storms that after Katrina, you realize the, the, the personal impacts and it, it totally changes you. Sure. And I think after Katrina, it, it totally changed me in, in how I see this. I, I started coming to it not from a scientific standpoint and looking at radar satellite and the data on a computer. I then saw it as how people are reacting to a Category 5 off the Louisiana coastline. Sure. And it may be the lot of residents here because we had gone – this is now, you know, generations that we've had any kind of a threat like this. And so I think even a lot of folks here didn't completely uh, comprehend and appreciate the, the, the gravity of the storm, which is why when the Weather Service locally started issuing their discussions and saying, you know, unsurvivable in their, in their text, I think that's when all of us professionally, the layman realized, oh my God, this is going to be bad. This is going to be really catastrophic. It's going to be catastrophic, and it's going to be something that will change you. And we actually, at our station, after the, the storm, they had uh, psychologists come in and talk sure. about, from now on, your life is going to be before Katrina and after Katrina. And it's funny, even now, in 2022, we'll still talk about things and say, oh, my God, that was right before Katrina, or that was before Katrina. Everything now in New Orleans 
is that is our kind of dividing line of life before Katrina and after Katrina. Defined, yeah, yeah, pre-Katrina and post-Katrina. You know, I lived in Baton Rouge for eight years and I bought a house in a subdivision that was built, I think, in 2006. So most of my neighbors were Katrina refugees. And I remember hearing these stories. There was a sweet woman across the street um, and she was like 82 when I got to know her. She was from St. Bernard Parish. And she just talked about evacuating the day before Katrina. They left all their family heirlooms on the ground floor. They just thought we're, we're leaving for a day. We'll be back tomorrow. And she talked. She was the queen of the Mardi Gras parade one year and had the crown and all these pictures lost it all. And she just said they, they just thought they were leaving for a night and coming back. You know, it just it wasn't really registering to a lot of these folks like the, I think it put 12 feet of water in their house and they, they left all this valuable stuff right on the ground floor. In my in my generation, I'm I'm 40 years old. In just my generation, the the small handful of times we would evacuate for a storm, that's what we did. We you you might if if we had the the energy. I have three younger brothers, so if we were all up to it, we would lift some things off the floor if we thought it was going to be bad. I remember rolling up carpets and putting them on top of sofas, and putting other things on top of dining room tables and and whatnot. But for the most part, the the rule of thumb was, yeah, you leave, you're gone for a couple of days, and then you're back home. It was yeah. sometimes, I remember for Hurricane George in 98, it was just kind of a mini vacation. We all left with family, went up to central Mississippi, and kind of enjoyed ourselves, and then went home a couple of days later, and everything was fine. We were back to normal. You're going back to school, and that's it. That was life. You, you evacuated. You probably get one scare maybe every few seasons that you might have to evacuate for. Of course, you're going to get the the uh, the diehards and I'm not evacuating for that at all. And then for the most part, there was never really a need to evacuate for most of the storms here up until, you know, you go, you kind of look back and it, to be honest, you go back to like the Betsy Camille years in the late sixties through the, the seventies, eighties, nineties, there wasn't really everything. I remember in uh, hurricane Andrew 92, that came at uh, Morgan city as a category yeah. three, there was never really talk about evacuating. As a matter of fact, that was sure. one of my first experiences of trying to learn more about the weather. I remember my parents still asleep in bed, and I walked outside with our dog just to experience the winds whipping up sure. uh, during the hurricane. So even then, a Cat 3, eh, we're going to stay home. We're not evacuating for this. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it was a few days off school. It was extended time with family. And then if your house doesn't get any destruction, no one you know is injured or, or killed. It's like, hey, that was actually kind of fun, right? So, it, and, and you completely forget about it. You think, oh, yeah, that was last year we had to evacuate for what storm name was that? I don't even remember. Yeah. We got a couple of days off of school, but it actually ended up being a mini vacation, as we said. Sure. So it, it, in the in the uh, recollections for a lot of kids, hurricanes were positive memories. It was a fun time. Everyone's together. But all of a sudden, Katrina is a little different. So here we are, August 28th. It's a Sunday afternoon. And all of a sudden, Katrina is about, I don't know, 18 hours before landfall. Geographically huge. Max winds 175 miles an hour. What is going through your mind when you're seeing those satellite images and you're you're just seeing the the updates from the National Hurricane Center? I, I was at that time kind of split at work doing on-air coverage and, and running back home. I think at that point, my family, parents, siblings, and, you know, close aunts and uncles were all planning to leave. So 
that part of my mind was relieved. They were leaving. I didn't have to worry about them or, or have to check in on them. But now they're worried about me because they know now my new job a year out of school is, oh, my God, you have to stay for these. You can't evacuate with us like you always did. So you're staying. I, I had an apartment in Jefferson Parish, and I remember being told, okay, go home, pack some stuff, and then bring it back to the station, and you'll be here for the duration. I said, okay. So I'm packing computers, some books, the old book that I had, and the few mementos that I wanted to bring and packing a bag. And while I'm packing, the general manager of the station at the time calls and says, uh, no, well, we've decided uh, you're going to be in the last convoy out and then going back to Mobile. You're going to be going to our sister station in Mobile and you'll be broadcasting from there if we need to hand over uh, broadcasting capabilities. Up until then, you look at the history of television in the city of New Orleans, we've never had to relay our station's coverage to another location. We've never had to sign off in New Orleans and, and go to another station. So in the history of New Orleans television, that's never been done before. And this will be the first time we have to do it. It was starting to look bad. And where WVUE is located is in Girktown, and it's a low area of the city where I am now at WWL, we're in the French Quarter. It's actually some of the highest ground in the city. If, if WWL and the French Quarter are flooding, the whole city is underwater. Where we were in Girttown, it's low, so it flooded fairly frequently. So I'm being told, you're going with the last of our convoys to Mobile to work out of our sister station. I said, okay, so I'm packing my stuff, go back to the station, and I'm in a convoy with a few other cars. It took us eight, nine hours to get to Mobile, which is normally a two-hour drive. We get to Mobile, and I can't remember what time of night it was. It was after 10, 11 o'clock, and they told us, we're, we're signing off in New Orleans. We're going to you. So here I am again, not a year out of college, only about a month on the air in New Orleans, and I'm taking the reins to do our storm coverage up to the point of landfall. It's me and a, a reporter that I'd never met before. We are sitting at what is amounted to much, it, it, no more than a card table with a curtain behind us. We're in the garage at our sister station in Mobile and it's go. The chief has signed off. They're evacuating the building in New Orleans and you're on the air for the duration because when I got to Mobile, it was me and another meteorologist who then said, I'm going to bed, you're gonna take it. <laughs> and so we went on the air. So we were on the air from 10, 11 that night until our replacements came in at maybe six, seven o'clock in the morning, storm was making landfall. And not long after that, our transmitter, which was on um, in St. Bernard Parish in Chalmette, the transmitter flooded when the water started rising and we went off the air. And so we were off the air for about two and a half, three weeks that we could not broadcast anything. And so my first experience was the landfalling of Hurricane Katrina and basically seeing us sign off for a kind of undetermined amount of time when our transmitter flooded. So, so you we had told, you had coverage that night of uh, Katrina's landfall. It made landfall, I guess, around dawn or, you know, in the early hours there. So you were covering that through the night. I'm imagining you're, you're up to date with the latest NHC information. Uh, were you getting any word of what was going on on the ground? I mean... Uh, or is it? Was it more meteorologically based? These are the latest uh, wind field, wind speed, storm surge forecast, things like that. 
we had a landline phone in between us that we could then call officials and reporters, putting our mics up to the, the, the receiver to hear what was going on. We couldn't see anything, but it was very much meteorologically based. And I had no, all of our computers, the, 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 the CPUs themselves, are in-house in New Orleans. So I couldn't access any of our computer graphics. So I am solely basing everything on the NHC's website and what few satellite radar services were available um, online at that time. It wasn't nearly as abundant as, as what we have now. And so at that time, we're looking for whatever information I can find sure. on, online to then take my laptop, turn it around to the camera and show them what I'm talking about, turn it back to me, find another website, turn the, I mean, it was it was not an easy um, night of coverage by sure. any means. It's not like you're all set up in a studio with with all these screens and cameras. You're you're there basically in a garage showing people off your laptop the best you can. It's it's not the fanciest of equipment by any means. It is a laptop, a single camera, and a, and a curtain backdrop with an anchor, a reporter that I'd never met before. This was our first introduction to each other because I'd only just started a month ago, so I wasn't really familiar with everyone on staff yet. And and it was go. You're 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 taking it from here. This is all on you, Chris. So landfall happens in down by Buras, Louisiana, and Plaquemines Parish, and then there's a second landfall up in Mississippi. All this is in the pre-dawn to the the morn, you know, then post-dawn in Mississippi hours. At what time did that technology go underwater in St. Bernard Parish, and you guys go off the air? It was it was sometime in the, the the maybe morning to midday, as a matter of fact, on our website, and it was a pretty antiquated website in two thousand and four. And we we had some of our graphics, and there is a a a point where the graphic images stopped updating, and that was when the the station flooded, and then when the transmitter then flooded as well, which knocked us off the air. So there was a time when all of our computers went underwater in Girt Town because we had the, our building had taken on six or more feet of water. So we were, we knew we were kicked out of our station for who knows how long. And then once we went off the air, it, it, it became kind of a, a dark place when people didn't know what we were going to do. We've never experienced anything like this. Our building is underwater. Our transmitter is off the air. And all the while, our parent company at the time was trying to sell us. So we had a parent company, but they were kind of trying to get rid of us. So they were trying to sell us to somebody. So we did have some decent support from our parent company up to a, up to a, a, a certain level. But it was, it was a stressful time because you're being in, in television, stations are bought and sold all the time. And during those periods, they can do layoffs. They can make drastic changes to management, to a new owner can come in and say, you know what, I just don't like this Chris Franklin guy. He's out. We're bringing in somebody different. So people are already nervous about a station sure. buyout. I know now friends of mine that work in yeah. I know now friends of mine that work in underwater and we can't broadcast. Who's to say this this company doesn't just say, you know what, we're we're done with WVUE. Shut them down. We don't know. We we're totally in the dark as to what's gonna happen. And, and it did become kind of a, a dark place. And maybe again, I'm young, I'm naive, I'm thinking, that's not a big deal. If if we go out of business, I'll try and find a job somewhere else. I, I'm not that. I don't have a, a family that I'm trying to take care of. It was it was just me at that time. Now, fast forward to where I am in my career now with a, a wife, a home, two kids. These things are, are a little bit more, and I do come to it from a completely different place than I was sure. during Katrina. And, and I do 
credit Katrina with really ramping up not only my professional on-air presentation and, and skill, but also personally and, and maybe taking a little bit more of an adult approach. I was still a kid at 23. Sure, sure. Um, her, uh, forecasting. So this was still very much my, my infancy of my career. But that, that, that you became an adult pretty quick uh, after that storm. Well, yeah, not only professionally, but then the town where you grew up in just got hammered by one of the worst disasters in U.S. history. So there you are in Mobile. You're going there to do coverage and everything goes offline. I mean, so the rest of that day, August 29th, 2005, I mean, what next? I guess it was the being left alone with your own thoughts that really was, you know, sometimes when these things are happening, you can at least work and and kind of distract yourself especially when it is your hometown. You know, we've talked about this a lot. It, it's completely different when, when, when these guys from the networks and the Weather Channel come down and do these storms and talk about it. There's a, a little bit of a, um, I don't know, what's the right word for it? Animosity maybe towards some of these folks because they come down, they want to get the, the big show and have the big presentation and the great backdrop. But then once they're done, they leave, they go home, they're done with this storm, they're moving on to the next one and the next big story. For us, this is home, this, this yeah. is the story, this is my life, this is all I have. Your disaster-stricken city is a platform for them and then they go home that weekend back to their stable life, right? And they're fine, and they've, they've forgotten about us. They may, they may remember us, but you know, for, for most of it, they are moving on to the next big story. And so for us, it's, and, and like I said, for me, I'm from New Orleans, so, really, I didn't want to move away. I didn't want to go anywhere else. This was home. I wanted to be here. And this was my life. And it was hard driving past places in the aftermath that you grew up knowing your entire life having seen either damaged or just gone. Old neighborhoods that you knew growing up, like where my grandparents lived out in eastern New Orleans, the neighborhood's just gone. It's just a yeah. ghost town and places that all you've ever known are are, are just damaged beyond repair or beyond recognition or wiped off the face of the earth sure. was yeah. a, it was a, it was it was an experience that um a, as we still say it was it was definitely a before and after katrina type type life change there's something about that disaster hitting your hometown too where there, you wow that's where i went to elementary school wow that's where my first girlfriend lived or whatever whatever it is right all of a sudden these things have a personal impact and the strange thing about katrina too was how slowly a lot of information was trickling out i mean even the government didn't even know parts of new orleans were starting to flood or just media was it isn't we don't have the technology we did to, we do today but still a lot of people were in the dark a lot of people were cut off in, i remember information was a bit slow trickling out of what's actually going on i mean so so in the days after Katrina, I mean, what, what did you do? Were you trying to get back into the city? Were you, did you stay out in Mobile? I mean, what did those days and weeks after Katrina look like? We, we stayed in Mobile another few days. Um, what was interesting was that we then were, as you said, it, it, it's amazing how we're not that far removed from Katrina, but uh, maybe technologically, we are still pretty far removed. There was no social media. The first time I ever sent a text message was after Katrina. That wasn't, we suddenly realized cell service was scant or non-existent, but you could text. So that's how we started communicating. I remember getting a text message for the first time. I didn't know what this was. And it was from our station. And it was just, just kind of a check-in, see how everyone is doing. Because 
When I left in the final convoy to go to Mobile, we still had a small skeleton crew uh, in New Orleans. They were then sent, when they realized they were probably in harm's way, knowing the threat of flooding, they were sent over the, to the West Bank and Harvey to the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office, and they kind of rode out the storm there. Now, they didn't have broadcasting capabilities. It was basically just to get them to a safe place. Few folks that had larger news vehicles, news units, were able to go back to the station through the flood water and kind of wade through the station to see what they could save. At that point, we realized on the first floor, there was really nothing that could be saved. Our computers were underwater. Everything was being shut off. Um, so a few folks did go back to the station. A few folks stayed in Harvey. Uh, and then a lot of those folks kind of went west. And we were east. The folks that went west were kind of isolated and couldn't get back. So you know, fast forward a few weeks after I was, they told us, look, we can't go on the air. Um, and, you know, as, as hospitable as the folks in Mobile were, they were also saying, but we need to get back to our jobs and let our people come back into work. So where I was sleeping in someone's office, well, she had to come back in. And so at that point, they kind of told us, look, if you can leave, leave for a few weeks and we'll get back in touch with you. We didn't know we were leaving and what they were getting back in touch with us um, about. So thankfully my family had all evacuated up to Oxford, Mississippi. We have a lot of family up there. So I went and you know, there was that little, okay, it's kind of a mini vacation. We were able to sure. somewhat relax, but it yeah. was also trying to collect food stamps just to, to buy things. You know, my family only had what we'd evacuated with. We were starting to get reports at that point that where we lived in Jefferson Parish was high ground and the homes likely did not flood, but we didn't know what the conditions of the homes were like. We didn't know if roofs were ripped off, if the water had gotten in. I mean, sure. flooding from either flood water or rainwater, the damage is done and we needed to know what we get back to. And I remember at that point, NASA started sending out um, uh, images, aerial images of bands of the city and you could go and click on your band of where you lived and have a more real-time uh, aerial sure. photograph of your home. So that's how we first checked on property and we could kind of decipher as you're doing uh, aerial reconnaissance on, okay, that's definitely my home, but I don't know if this is damaged or is this just a tree down or what that was. So we're trying to uh, you know, de determine with remote sensing <laughs> for the folks that have yeah. never taken a remote sensing class, what exactly am I looking at to figure out if their home is damaged? And it wasn't until about maybe three weeks later, two or three weeks later, that we were finally given the, not all clear, but the clearance to at least go and check on our property. So I remember my dad and brothers and I drove down, stopped, got a bunch of barrels of gas in the back of our car, and then drove into the city. We went to go check on our house, other family members' houses, my apartment, everything was okay. We were able to at least decipher that the structures were still there. Sure. And so the, the immediate was try and relax a little bit, but knowing I don't know what condition my home is in, get back to New Orleans to check on things, but you were not allowed to stay. So once you could go home, check on your property, uh, clean out your fridge, which at that point had been two weeks of food turning rancid and trying to get that out, you needed to leave. And so then we had to go back. And I think we then stopped in uh, some family members in Baton Rouge who had power and, you know, things life in Baton Rouge was, was fairly back to normal. They had some damage. Even Mobile had some damage from Katrina. It was a, as you said, a massive storm. So both of these locations had damage, but not to the extent of New Orleans. So a few weeks later, we were able to at least go back, check on our homes. We went back up to Oxford for a few days. And then I was given the text of, hey, 
we've found a way to at least broadcast online. If you can, when you can, come back to Mobile. And so we got back to Mobile, a few of us, then, you know, Steadley's uh, folks started returning. And we were in Mobile from Katrina's landfall to the weekend after Thanksgiving. That's wow. how long we had to stay in Mobile. And even once we got back to New Orleans, uh, we had a couple of production studios on, uh, as well as our new studio, newsroom, all those facilities. And we kind of had a makeshift news, news production facility in one room, the, the control room, some small offices, edit bays, the newsroom, the news desk, the weather center, the anchor desk was just all in this one big room that was still kind of open to the elements. We had porta potties outside to go to the bathroom. We had armed security guards because uh, as far as New Orleans, Girt Town is not the safest of neighborhoods. And once you tack on the fact that we're one of the few areas with power, you become kind of a target. So we had armed guards around us at all times. And it was kind of a rough area to go back to. In fact, driving in, once I was able to finally return home, even after uh, Thanksgiving, driving back into the station, I would have to go past a, a army checkpoint and show identification before I could cross into Orleans Parish just to go to work every morning. Wow, that's amazing. So you were in Mobile until around Thanksgiving, then post Thanksgiving, Girktown got power back, things started being mucked out, you could kind of get back into the studio. But like you said, there were security issues. Obviously, a, a lot of New Orleans was still in bad shape. And, and like you said, National Guard was there, security checkpoints were there. And, and you were maybe one of the few areas that had power and, and things were kind of up and running again. Yeah, where we were, you know, it was, it was like partially up and running, but but you you you're you're kind of an island in the middle of just devastation. And and Girt Town was hard hit. It all flooded, um, and really all of our surrounding areas had flooded. So you had abandoned homes for months to years after the storm. And I mean, and there's still some parts of the city, even even now, that you still see those scars. But certainly in the the following months and years after Katrina, you were reminded of that storm every single day. And it was really years until we were no longer reminded on a daily basis of just how bad it was and what we had all gone through. I mean, it was definitely a, a mental health um, concern as well here because it, it, it drained on you. And this wasn't one of those storms where it moves in, it moves out, it passes a couple of days later, you've cleaned up your front lawn and you're, you're back to normal and you've completely forgotten about it, which has really been our history since the 60s with hurricanes. And now here we have Katrina, which then we're kind of reminded of on a, on a daily basis for many years of, of just, just what we went through. Really moving stories and sobering memories there from Chris Franklin as he recounted his experience as a young meteorologist covering Hurricane Katrina. He touched on so many important topics, but I wanted to reflect a little more on two in particular. The first one is the recurring theme he brought up that in general, People along the northern Gulf Coast had no frame of reference to place a storm like Katrina when it struck in 2005. Metro New Orleans, for example, had not experienced a devastating hurricane strike since Hurricane Betsy way back in 1965, and by nearly every metric, Katrina's impacts were more severe than Betsy. The day before Katrina made landfall, it blew up into a geographically huge hurricane with maximum winds of 175 miles an hour. The satellite images alone were so ominous, but people on the ground really didn't know what to expect from a storm that was so far off the charts from anything they had seen before. Many evacuees expected to leave for a couple days, return home to the, to the place they left, and were shocked when their homes were unlivable for weeks, months, or even longer. 
It's hard to imagine the scale of a disaster that far exceeds our frame of reference. The best we can do is realize that some disasters out there are far beyond what we've seen in our lives. This is why we build buffers. We should try to build higher than the previous record flood level, for example, if possible, and include a buffer in case the next storm is even worse. Keep in mind, too, that the disaster history for your community may actually have some very catastrophic events in the distant history that happened far before you were alive. So go back into those archives. This is what we try to do to really see what has happened in a place. And in a place like coastal Georgia, the locals will often tell you the hurricanes always miss us. They hit south of us in Florida, or they curve up and they hit the Carolinas, and they'll often feel like they're exempt. They're not going to get hit. But when we go back to the late 1800s, we see a lot of really catastrophic hurricanes hitting southern South Carolina and Georgia. So sometimes we just have to look back a little farther, maybe back before our lives or even our grandparents' lives. Also keep in mind that looking backwards does not always work because sometimes the strongest storm on record hits a location and it exceeds the worst thing that had ever been recorded there. Also with a warming climate, which is raising sea levels and helping hurricanes rapidly intensify, we may see some storm characteristics in the future that are more severe than what we've seen in the past. So the past can be an indicator and it can help guide us, but we should also build this buffer in the best we can to prepare for the future. We will do well to prepare for something more intense than what we've previously seen to the best of our ability. Chris, thank you also for reminding us that even though many of us find extreme weather exciting, we need to be sensitive and aware that many people in our communities may be suffering when a big storm hits. You shared that the idea of Katrina was exciting to you at first as you were a recent meteorology grad and this was a major hurricane approaching your hometown. It sounds like your feelings about the storm quickly changed, however, when you saw the massive impact on people's lives. Many of our podcast listeners will benefit from this insight as a lot of our faithful followers are weather fanatics. I can relate to this and this has been a lesson I've had to learn myself. I've been passionate about weather and climate since I was a little boy, and I've always found big storms exciting. But living along the Gulf Coast had made me very aware of the human impact of these storms. Take last year, for example. In February 2021, Texas was hit by a snow and ice storm, followed by an extended period of extreme cold. When the cold air reached the Gulf Coast, it changed our rain to heavy sleet in Galveston, accompanied by thunder and lightning. I was ecstatic at first. I was out in the streets at 1.30 in the morning. All the sleet is hitting me in the face. There's thunder, there's lightning. It was super exciting. But a somber mood quickly displaced my excitement after the power went out, forcing millions of Texans to ride out this frigid weather in the cold, in cold, dark homes, actually. More than 100 people died from hypothermia or indirect causes like carbon monoxide poisoning from unventilated generators. I never shared my quote unquote exciting videos of the thundersleet in Galveston. At that point, it would have been inappropriate as millions of people in my state suffered or in some cases even passed away. For the young meteorologists and weather enthusiasts out there, keep your excitement and passion alive. Keep posting all those amazing pics and videos to social media and share your enthusiasm on most days. But if a storm takes a tragic turn, be aware that real people's lives have been impacted and may never be the same. 
there's a sweet spot where we can report on the weather factually without rooting for any kind of destruction or big impacts. Chris, thank you so much for reminding us of this very important lesson. Well, hey, everyone, this interview continues next week as we hear part two of my interview with Chris Franklin. That episode will air on Monday, August 29th, the 17th anniversary of Katrina's landfall. Incidentally, that date is also the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Isaac and the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Ida, which both impacted Southeast Louisiana as well. A special thanks to our GeoTrek marketing and promotion team who help share this podcast with a growing audience every week. This is Dr. Hal signing off until the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.